0: Welcome to Series 10 and our 91st episode of Conversations of Inspiration. I can't quite believe that the end of this series will mark 100 founders and what a series we have in store. Today, I'm speaking with Kirsty and Alistair from Hoxton Street Munster Supplies and the Ministry of Stories. And to put it lightly, I'm a huge fan. For those of you who don't know, this is an incredible culmination of charity and retail. Ministry of Stories is a charity Charity that supports young people in East London in finding their confidence, imagination, and potential through the power of creative writing. And this inspiring charity is hidden behind a secret door in a shop that sells supplies specifically for monsters. Hoxton Street Munster Supplies. Theirs is a project that's incredibly close to my heart, not only because it's a charity fueled by passion, but also because their creativity, their ingenuity and imagination shine so brightly at every single touchpoint. I'm so excited to share this brilliant and completely fascinating organization with you. And I hope you'll look them up after listening to this podcast and support them all you can.
1: Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown
0: I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street from The Kitchen Table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. And I believe that having a business, doing what you love, is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement... And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and asked them to share theirs with thanks to NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Wow, what a special day this is for me. I am ridiculously excited to be speaking to you both because I'm one of your biggest super fans, the genius Hoxton Street Munster Supplies and the Ministry of Stories. Alistair and Kirsty, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Oh well, Thank you for having us. Delighted to be here.
0: Well, it's my delight because everyone listening, you'll get a sense this is one of the sort of brands that I think is the pinnacle of brands that we have today out there. But I want to start right at the beginning, if I may. Kirsty, if we can start with you, I'd love to hear the story firsthand of what your childhood was like and what you were dreaming of. Gosh, my childhood. Well, first
2: and foremost, have had a very, very lucky childhood. I didn't dream that far ahead. I think I was in a supportive home and lived for the moment and thought maybe a week or two ahead. Never really had big plans and dreams because it was too much fun where I was right now. So I think for me, I didn't know where I was going. I wasn't one of those children that had plans for my future, my career, or big white weddings or anything like that, really. Just wanted to be happy, I would say, at the root of it.
0: And Alistair, tell us about your background. Were you always interested in art?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I was really lucky as a kid to have a fantastic art teacher when I was at school, uh, Miss Pete. She was super encouraging and I just you know, loved doing it. So it was a bit of a no-brainer and really lucky to have supportive parents who let me carry on with that and weren't pushing me away from it. No one really thought that art was a career unless you wanted to become a fine artist. Mm. I'd been to the University of Leeds for my first degree and then got into making TV commercials and worked for a production company for a couple of years. And- my big plan was to go and start making films. Ah. And then I read a book that was actually a diary of people working in the film business. And there was a producer and she was writing about her week and what she got up to. And she talked about going to meet the guys who'd done the posters for her film. And it was a real light bulb moment where I just went, oh, I don't want to make films. I want to make the posters for the films. I then had to talk to a whole bunch of people. And I was lucky to know people who knew graphic designers and they kind of said, go and have a chat. And they said, look, you don't have to go to university, but you're going to, have a much stronger time if you do. So I was lucky enough to get into St. Martin's and I went into it in a really focused way. I was like, I absolutely want to nail this. I'm taking a step off my career in order to start a new one. So I've got to come out with a really good result.
0: Has this always been a motivating force for you, Kirsty? Because we're going to talk more now in a moment about the charity angle of your phenomenal brand that you look after today. Helping others who might be disadvantaged, this has run throughout your career hasn't it?
2: It has i mean i I was a good generalist. I would say i didn't have one lead skill i didn't know exactly what I wanted to be or what I wanted to do, but i just I loved exploring different subjects, different ideas, different topics and um for me, I think when I went to university and I studied social geography. I just realized I was all about the people and communities and locality and how people are within that community. So for me, I've always been very focused on being in a place that's about nurturing talent, commitment. And I knew I didn't want to work for a big company. I fell into my first job in charity. A dear friend saw a job that I thought, wow, that looks amazing. But how would I ever get that job? And she just said, but it's about who you are. It's about what you believe. And so I applied and I got my very first job in charity, which was to run a Christmas shelter for homeless people in Bristol. And it all snowballed from there. And I ended up working in homelessness for around 15 years in the end, going from job to job. But really, for me, it was about taking the opportunity to rise up people that didn't have a voice of their own, or in a kind of chaos that they couldn't see their path out of it. I have spent my career trying to support others from my advantage position to know that they could have a brighter future.
0: Amazing. And back to you, Alistair. I personally and my sister, we're nuts for graphics and anything typography. Tell me about what it is for you that interests you so much. What's your journey with it?
3: Wow, that's a good question. I think it's the fact of communication. And Having come through studying English and history of art, the happy place between those is communication, right? Yes. It was only while I was at St. Martin's that I discovered typography and my love of it. Having gone through three years of that, I came out the other side and was real type geek.
2: <laughs> you still are today. Ashton. I still
3: am today, very much so. Uh, so I, all of that is in the service of a message and of communicating. Mm. And I think that's the main thing. If I can take a complicated message and present it beautifully and clearly, then I'm doing my job.
0: The reason I wanted to speak to you today is because I honestly believe that what has been built here is one of those nuggets of gold. I talk a lot about purpose-driven businesses and how important it is to have it at the heart of everything you do. Kirsty, I actually think it would be great if you can tell us a bit about the charity as a whole and how it works for anyone who isn't familiar. I'd be delighted to.
2: The lead charity uh, that we're discussing today is the Ministry of Stories, which was founded in Hackney on Hoxton High Street back in 2010 by Alistair, alongside Ben Payne and Lucy McNabb and the author Nick Hornby. Now, it was inspired by A Model in America, which was around bringing creative writing and a magical shop together into one space. And we actually, Ben, Lucy, Nick and Alistair as the founders, had that vision of bringing the very first version of that to London into the community of Hackney. And really, the core thing is that we have a tiny, small catchment area, just around 500 metres, where children can come into our writing centre after school and on a Saturday morning in order to receive support, direction, inspiration to use writing as a tool that they can take away with them for life. So we get to work on amazing projects. At the moment, we're doing audio stories. We've done picture books. We've done tasty cookbooks we've done animations wow we've done filmmaking we've done songwriting you know if you think about it writing is in everything that we love Mm. as individuals and I think you know working with children from the local area from age eight you know children aren't restrained by this idea that oh this isn't very good or I've not got a great idea or you know children are bonkers they have got (laughs) the best ideas they don't you know, make their answers sensible. And I think it is just a joy to hear the walls of the workshop just fizzing with the children's mad ideas. You know, I think one of the strengths of the charity is that it's really about children finding their voice through writing and being able to advocate for themselves and recognising that their stories and their experience and their you know, life and what they're experiencing growing up in East London is worth something and worth sharing. So an eight year old is as worth reading as a 42 year old. It doesn't require years and decades of experience. It doesn't require age. Yeah, And that's been a surprise to me.
0: Kirsty mentioned, Alistair, where the idea came from, because it came from the 826 National Project. And I'd love to know more about this initial idea, because it developed into the Ministry of Stories.
3: So um, Dave, I guess, for people who don't know, is a wonderful author. And he was living in Brooklyn around 2000. And he just finished his first book, which is a heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius, which is a great title. And actually, he was a graphic designer as well. So there's a, I think, a connection in what happens with these organisations. Yes. He was getting offices in San Francisco. And what he realised is that he could put all his writer friends who had flexible hours and a bit of spare time together with local kids Mm. and could get them to work together because the one thing that they were lacking these kids was one-to-one attention so in the new space he found for McSweeney's he realized that they could find some space for a cheatering center that would then share space where all the writers were working and the front of the building was zoned for retail which means it had to be used as a shop and they were taking this all apart And they found that there was this beautiful wooden floor and these amazing wooden beams in the ceiling. And someone said, oh, look, this looks a bit like a pirate ship. (laughs) Quickly after that, someone else said, well, we should sell things to pirates then if we've got to have a shop here. So rather than laughing that off, they thought, let's actually do it. So they set up uh, the world's first pirate shop. So for kids who are coming to the centre, suddenly it's not like going to a tutoring centre, which sounds quite dry and is really about schoolwork. Yes. This was about imagination and joy. And also it meant you knew right from the outset that whatever you're going to be doing there was probably going to be quite a lot of fun. He had the pirate store in San Francisco in New York. They had the Brooklyn Superhero Supply Company where you could buy um, superhero supplies. So you get capes, grappling hooks, tins of muscles. In LA, they had time travel marts where you could buy time machine parts, robot milk, dinosaur eggs. And each of them had the writing centre hidden behind a secret door in the shop shelves. So we just did that thing of seeing something that looked glorious and thought, we'll have a bit of that. We looked at what the commonalities were of all the centres in America, and we put together three options, and these were done partly in collaboration with groups of kids, and we tested out various ideas. And We wanted something that was gender neutral, that you know, would be appreciated by both boys and girls. So then the third idea was monsters, and we thought it was great because girls and boys equally can find something in that. We just then got together a big, big group of volunteers and sat them down and said, right, imagine your daily life, you're now a vampire, you're a werewolf, you're a mummy. Imagine your daily life as it is anyway, just now you're a vampire and work out what you have to do and work out what you need based on that. Well, the thing that I loved about the American stores was that they treat it with a really serious face. Mm -hmm. They're not nudging you, they're not winking Mm -hmm. at you and they're certainly not treating the kids as a special case where you need to be extra, you know, you need to telegraph the joke. We wanted to say, okay, monsters exist. Monsters go shopping. What would the shop look like that they go to? It won't look spooky because monsters don't think they're spooky. They're just monsters. They're just getting on with their daily lives. So we followed that logic. Yes. And actually, also, we had very little budget. So there was a real driver that we wanted to create something that was really simple to produce. So, you know, everything was black and white to save on costs. And we wanted to be able to produce stuff really quickly as well. So that meant typography was an easy way to go. And I hadn't done much packaging work before either. so it was, there were was lots of reasons to go down the particular routes, as well as cultural references and looking at old, you know, general stores throughout England and that sort of stuff.
0: If you think small businesses are listening now, it's interesting, isn't it? Just to take a moment about what is the future of retail? Is it about experience? Actually, drawing people into the heart of a brand because of the experience they have, that then translates to online in the future. What's your viewpoint there?
2: When I arrived into the shop three years ago and got those keys, the shop was all set up for the day's trading. And the very first thing I heard was Wells, our invisible cat, meowing in the corner. And I wasn't expecting it. No one had primed me for it. And I just thought, what on (laughs) earth is that? There's an empty basket, but I can hear a cat. And the best thing about that is three years later, every time I'm in the shop and we have customers in, There is that same fresh response of what on earth is that? Where is that? We've even had dogs react to that. And actually, in terms of making the shop slightly less weird and slightly more accessible, having a familiar sound is a really good way of relaxing our customers into being in the shop because it gives you something to talk about. So while they're standing there going, can I eat this stuff? Is this really bogey? Is that a chewy (laughs) bit of earwax? What is that? You know, having a conversation about an invisible cat just gives them time to settle. And it's a very little shop, but it's jam-packed full of that stuff. So the other experiences you'll find without giving the game away too much if you come to visit, is we also two years ago bought in a letter writing service. We really, really wanted to connect the heart of the Ministry of Stories being a writing charity with the shop because there was a bit of a disconnect there. And we also know that not every child will come to our club. Mm -hmm. And so we have created a postal service that's now accessible to humans where you can write to six lonely monsters that have written into the shop That really want to have safe human contact and they're kind of curious about the human world. (laughs) And so actually we now can have a space for children writing in the shop, writing to Betty the Yeti or Elle the Dragon or even Pudding who lives in the cupboard and loves jam. She's a little gremlin. And a few weeks later you will receive an original letter written back by Betty or by Pudding to your child and that'll be received at home or you get the excitement of collecting it from the shop. And just bringing that kind of letter writing tradition back in is absolutely right for our shop. Mm -hmm. You get to put the stamps on the envelope, you get to post it. You know, it's going to be delivered by post-mortem, our specialist post-service, and there's likely to be a mishap along the way. And will the letter make it back to you in time? We may be a tiny shop, but what you want to do is create another world or this kind of world between the human and monster world, which is a safe place to be in, but it can sort of excite and captivate.
0: Speaking to retailers on this podcast, it's this idea of long gone as the days where we shop till we drop. The high street actually was just designated as a shopping area. What you're saying is, is that the future? You know, actually, is it just a town centre where a lot of things can happen on a high street? A high street is now doesn't equal, you know, shopping. And I, I think as well, what I'm fascinated about is that, you know, I'm contacted by a lot of charities and I'm trying to help as many as I can. One of the things that doesn't happen and they've not been able to develop within their charity scope is that a lot of charities don't have a retail arm. You know, they might have their logo on a key ring. They have merchandise, but not retail. And I think what's so exciting about this conversation is For maybe people who are listening, who know charities or they're involved in charities, it's to understand is how can a charity start to develop something that's meaningful? That's actually maybe outside, as you've just said, outside of the actual, I love how you've said, Kirsty, you've joined it together. And I completely understand what you've done there with the letter writing. But actually, I've, I've noticed that a lot of charities just do not have great product They don't have an identity that actually could help them raise money, but not because it's necessarily, you know, I'm buying this because it's going to help the charity. It's actually the product first, isn't it? You know, and that's just the key, isn't it, Alistair, for great product. You know, you you might do good, but that's not why you're buying it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the key things about setting this up was that you know you're creating a shop that sells wonderful things yes and the byproduct of that is that you generate um, excitement and interest about the writing center both for the kids and for the volunteers and for the staff so you're sort of reshaping how everyone's thinking of this thing one of the things we were really careful about was that we didn't want to create any landfill. Mm -hmm. So for all the products in the shop, we wanted them all to have a real purpose. Even if they were comedy monster products, we still wanted them to be things you could use. So even though you could buy a neck bolt tightener, if you were Frankenstein's monster, it was still a spanner that you could use at home if you needed to. And the fang floss is still some really good garden twine that you can use. So everything has to have a purpose.
0: Go to the website, but now imagine there's a door, a secret door. And this is your way from the shop into the ministry of stories. I'd love, Kirsty, if you can tell us more about... The sort of children that it is supporting, because before the podcast started, I was saying, you know, I was reading about a 10 year old, Mezzo, who basically went to the Ministry of Stories and published a book. This was just incredible. But you actually let me know that actually, this is actually what we do. Talk to me about what's going on here with these kids and where you think that's leading to, because from the sounds of it, it's not just about their writing skills. It's developing humans is developing these children and their confidence? So I think it's really
2: worth stressing that our charity was set up to serve the immediate local community. And at our very, very heart, we run community writing labs that are free to the children and their families. And that is something that will carry the charity into its future. You know, we've been here for 10 years, all of those programmes are still free for our very local families. And that is a really key part of the charity. One of the other really guiding principles about how we work is that all of our programs are run by professional writers. So that idea that Alistair said that Dave had originally of children being with writers that do this for a job Mm -hmm. and they can do it for a job in lots and lots of different ways. But seeing that kind of leader at the front of the room, that this is a valid career for them, that they know what they're talking about, it's really important that our programs are run by professional writers. And that has been a standard that we've set from the beginning. In the room as well, we run with a huge army of volunteers, we have around 250 writing mentors a year, so that when it's time for those children to break out from the main carpet area or the main central activity and go and sit on the tables, they are supported as small groups or as individuals by a volunteer writing mentor who really is there to listen and to encourage and to tease out the ideas from the child, never to say, What about this idea instead? You know, it's always led by the children's imagination. That is really, really critical because, as I said right at the start, their imaginations are just incredible and wild. So why on earth would an adult need to lead that or control that in any way? Mm. The other part of it is that we always work towards a proper professional Product. So, depending on which 10 week programme we're running, that may well be a performance speech in the Houses of Parliament in one of the chamber rooms. It may well be a published picture book where the child has worked with a professional volunteer illustrator and that book has gone to print, got an ISBN number, and been printed and lodged in their local library. Wow. So, for us, it's not just the act of writing week in, week out for 10 weeks, it's so that the child. And the young writers just always aiming for that final professional polish product at the end. And it's in them seeing that at the end that they realise, oh, OK, no, I am a writer. Yes. I won't be a writer. I am a writer. And that has always been key. And every programme we've run has been that final proper published output. That's what we're there to give the children, to show that they can do this right now, so that they have aspirations, so that they know they can see the final quality and they can take that with them into whatever they choose to do later in their life.
0: NatWest's support for small businesses goes way beyond simply finance and day-to-day banking. Through their online business hub, you can find all kinds of useful information on how to kickstart and grow your business from strategy and planning to sales and marketing. And it's all free. Head over to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker, where you'll also be able to view my exclusive video sharing top tips for small businesses and sign up for free email business updates. Now, as you know, every week we run a competition with NatWest who give away their ad break to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your business to tens of thousands of listeners. So let me hand over to this week's NatWest Independent Ad Break winner.
1: Hi, I'm Sally, and I'm the co-founder of Handy Spelling. We're a company dedicated to helping children who find writing and spelling tricky. Mom,
0: how do you spell Tuesday?
1: Just a second, darling. Our idea is pretty simple. We want to give kids help where they need it, in the palm of their hands. Handy Spelling tools organise spelling and grammar rules to make everything... Mom, what's an ad I'm trying to record a radio commercial the rules to make literacy easier each product is designed to be clear colorful joyful and useful whether a child is dyslexic learning english as a foreign language or simply hasn't yet mastered spelling we know confidence in writing improves when children aren't worried about their spelling and every child is born creative and curious no kid should lose those qualities because of the daft rules of english it's especially handy now that kids have missed so much school visit handyspelling.com thank you If you'd like to take NatWest
0: up on their generosity and be heard by tens of thousands of people, we've created more information on what we're looking for at our website, holly.co. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. When we talk about brands and the brands that really resonate with us, really pull at our heartstrings are the brands that, you know, you scratch the surface and you can keep going layer in, layer in, and it still resonates. It's still true. And you just keep going. What's so interesting about the way that you've taken a look at this charity is that there's depth, there's journey. Was that part of your dream right at the beginning because it feels like it was really strategic in a way, you know, that you'd really thought it fully through.
3: Yeah, I think it's baked into the very notion of what the centre is. And that comes from 86 in America, that you are treating the children's writing as professional work. And that means that they treat it in a different way. They see what the output is going to be and they see that they're being treated as equals. And so they give their heart and soul into it you know, that creates a very different energy. You know, we always thought that we need to make sure that whatever we're producing, we're producing it as seriously and as professionally as we would if it was being done by adults and was, you know, a real world product. And in some senses, they are, they are real world products. We did a newspaper all based around Hoxton Street and the kids wrote all the news stories and we produced it as a proper newspaper. And then we set up a stall in the market and they went around and sold it. And they, no.
0: <laughs> this look
3: of joy, and, but also they were really hard salesmen. They were going around and making sure that everyone <laughs> gave them money and bought <laughs>
0: Copy. <laughs> I can imagine. It's it's truly something else. And I and I can imagine, like all charities who've been going through a difficult time, you know, you ran physical writing and mentorship workshops. And now obviously we're in lockdown 2.0. Tell me about how you've been able to pivot, because this is must be what you had to concentrate on immediately. What have you learned through this? And are there things that you're doing now that potentially you're just going to keep continuing? So it was really, really heartbreaking to cancel
2: the clubs. Um, We canceled the physical clubs just before lockdown was called. And the team felt terrible about that. But um, equally, their safety and the safety of our volunteers has to come above everything. So I think we very quickly put our nuggets together and thought, well, we don't want to be idle and doing the admin. Actually, we want to continue being there week in, week out for the families because they're going to need us now. So our team, our program team, worked really, really hard to pull together the equivalent programs online using Zoom. Yep. And within a few weeks, we were back up and running. And we were even able to get our writing mentor side of our work into that room as well. So Our writing mentors join the Zooms. They're still led by a professional writer. And then when we do breakout rooms, then the mentors go with small groups of children into the rooms to then work on the work together. So we've carried this on since March. It has been something that has in some ways brought our families closer to us than ever before, because we're a bit of a mystery hidden behind a secret door, deliberately so, unless parents come to the sharings at the end of term or come and see a performance in the houses of parliament actually you know maybe we are a little bit weird and there's been something about suddenly being projected into our children's homes where the parents can sort of hear in the background or pop in and say hi or or their younger sibling who's maybe age six and desperate to come, comes and joins the call as well. And so in that way, although it's been really hard to mobilise the programme and it's not quite the same, I think the connection that we've developed with those individual families and being a consistent weekly support for them has been something I'm very proud of and something certainly that we've had a huge amount of feedback has been a highlight of lockdown.
0: It's really inspirational. It's taking me back to um, Alistair's. I spoke to Sir Tim Smith, the founder of Eden Project, and he was talking about how as adults, you know, when you look back, we don't sort of wish we had learnt more math. We wish we had had more opportunity to explore music, art, creative writing, all the things which as we move into the world dominated by AI, you know, can't be replicated. And these very human skills that basically was saying, we have to ensure that the younger generations are encouraged and supported and built through their local communities. And this sort of summarises in a way exactly what you're doing. Would you agree, Alistair? You know, what's the legacy that you're looking to leave with all that you've done over the last decade? Wow, um
3: I mean, I agree completely. The thing that I often think about is with creativity being sort of stripped out of education, increasingly, it's seen that it's frivolous and unnecessary. And yeah, obviously, we know, you know, completely that it um, provides well being and joy and, you know, all the good stuff. But Sometimes it's seen as you do this creativity, and it's either you do it and you go into a career in it, or you can just forget about it and then you go into a career that isn't creative. And that for me just seems like a misconception of what we do in our lives that people are creative in every business that they do, and they need to understand creativity, they need to understand aesthetics, and they need to understand communication. So, yeah, from a very personal point of view, you know, I love and adore what I do. I feel very lucky that that's been part of my life. And I would want everyone to have that in their lives, whether it's something they do in their career or just something they do outside of their careers.
0: It's such a pity, isn't it, that we can't, with a megaphone, actually say this to people who determine what our young are doing in their daily lives in education. And it feels like the more I speak to founders and those who inspire me, the more everyone wants to press reset on our entire education. System, it shocks me how there is such want for this, and yet we seem to just continue <laughs> with you know our children following the same footsteps that we did. Yeah. Because you know, I'm interested to just to hear what you feel from your experience in charity, and for those listening now, potentially will know of charities that they support. This idea that when you came three years ago and how this. Ingenious brand basically raised revenue for a charity. You must have had experience where that wasn't the case, Mm. you know, that you were completely just relying on raising money from the public Mm -hmm. or going for grants. And what would you recommend to those working within charity to try and think differently? Because I do think that the charity sector potentially needs to be developed as much as I would say the retail sector needs to be developed on the high street.
2: I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the challenges of a, a charity sort of leading a shop is it'd be great to have retail expertise early on. And I'm sure that uh, the 826 Projects and ourselves and, you know, our sister up north would really benefit from the fact that charities have can have a really great idea and just sometimes a little bit more of a, a retail niche in terms of expertise on the team would have helped it launch further. So when I arrived It absolutely caught my eye. It was like a sparkling, remarkable breath of fresh air. I mean, I'd been in a charity sector for a very long time. I'd never seen anything like it. Having a proper brand new monster world to enter into as your entranceway to a charity was just mind-blowing. I think what it drives is, is attention. I mean, I think when Ben and Lucy and Alistair set up, you know, it was a plucky little startup that just got so much attention because it was so weird, right? Yeah, I mean. (laughs) It's so unusual. (laughs) And even we find now the Ministry of Stories on its own would not get the attention that it gets without also having this bonkers monster shop because it is picked up by Time Out constantly who are incredible friends of ours. The Culture Whisperer, we get shout outs all the time. We find ourselves in travel guides. We don't even know where we are. It just depends on if we ask our customers how they found out about us today. The shop brings an edge to our charity that I've never, ever seen before. And what's different is you're giving back. You're giving something that tickles and delights. You're giving something that enriches a shopper's life. We have shoppers that come into our shop that don't even know that it supports a charity. So mm. by the time they get that message, they are absolutely blown away. You know, they came for sugar-dusted bogies, but they left knowing that that purchase has helped support the creative writing that they can actually hear behind the secret door. Yeah, Because uh, on a Saturday morning, especially, there is an awful lot of laughter. I mean, some charities have been amazing at innovating in terms of income generation. Sadly, there are also some of the charities that are now really struggling because their venues are shut and there are other ways of earning money through membership or events or venue hire or running a bar or running a shop is struggling. But actually, if your offer can be online, then even if your bricks and mortar store has to shut or your bricks and mortar service has to shut, if you've got that brand profile and you've got that supportive community of shoppers and people that love your brand and love your charity, then actually you can ride through the harder times that we're all facing right now.
0: What is the future for Hoxton Street Monster Supplies in the Ministry of Stories? When you look at the let's call it the next decade, or what we've learned through this period of time with COVID. What are you seeing? So if I start with the Ministry of Stories, for us, it's about reach.
2: We're a tiny little building. We want to reach more young writers and help more children become young writers in schools our strategy at the moment is around expanding our schools program in hackney tower hamlets and islington because for us the more children we can reach the better that's what we were founded to do and then hoxton street we know that we do best when lots of people know about us and Are Really, really keen to reach out to our original wholesalers and other wholesalers to carry our stock, to spread our brand, which would help fund us to innovate on our product range and just get some energy and money behind us because we have more ideas and more products than you could possibly imagine living in our brain and on the shelf that we're unable to bring to life. You know, we're looking for people to help sponsor our products. We're looking at wholesalers that will carry our products because the more that the shop can do and the better the shop does, then the more that the Ministry of Stories can fulfil its own ambitions as a charity.
0: Right now, if there's someone who's thinking, ha, I need to stock these products today, then get in touch with you. I'm assuming if you're looking for volunteers who are writers as well to come and help you, simply where would they email? Just let, Let's just put it out there, Kirsty. I would just say email me straight away. <laughs>
2: so uh, my email is Kirsty at ministryofstories.org. I would say because of our programmes being online at the moment, we can't do a lot of large volunteer recruitment just for now but we do need to do shopkeeper recruitment. That's a really important thing, trying to find people that are able and excited and interested in volunteering in a monster shop and to help get our packages off to all of the little monsters that are living around the country and packing cockroaches along the way. So we are looking for volunteer shopkeepers.
0: Is that not the best job ad ever? Who says that? It's a complete dream. And Alison, do you literally wake up in the night and just think about new products? And tell me about, from a product perspective, what you're looking at in the future.
3: We've got a fairly rich list of things that we want to do. The tricky thing is you come up with an idea and then it's like, well, how do we make this? actually happen actually a lot of the time we just find things and go how can we repurpose that how can we make that thing what would it be if it was monstrous if it wasn't its real thing so we've got a fairly long list and it's just budget and time it's just a question of what can we put in at what time because it, you've got to have the money up front to produce that thing yes of course and also actually just space you know the shop isn't huge there's x amount of stuff we can have in the shop at any one time and we're always like pushing against the edges of that you know if we do find new space for the centre then that might open up new shop space and that would be a really exciting kind of new moment for that What I would say is we are always looking for volunteer designers. So if there are any designers out there who'd love to work on a really exciting project, do get in touch with me, Alistair, at wemadethis.co.uk, or just uh, email through to the ministry and um, yeah, just drop us your details.
0: I wish I could design, (laughs) but I definitely am going to be putting my hand up to help you. We've come to the end of this podcast. And what I would love to ask you both is, What are your highs and lows on this journey? If it was a roller coaster, what would you say, Alistair, has been a low point on this journey?
3: There really haven't been many low points, which is blisteringly lucky. I think that if there is a low point, when we were setting up the shop, we had to build the shelves. We had some brilliant interior designers and architects who helped us out. And then Ben and I actually were in the shop painting it with a kind of varnish. And we painted, I think, about three quarters of it. It taken quite a long time. And then the fire protection dude came around and said, hang on, you've been using the wrong stuff because that's flammable. You need to put fire retardant stuff. And so we had to repaint the whole lot. And there was a moment about three quarters of the way through the second coat where we are just like, what are we doing?
0: Yeah those horrible moments before launch where really, you know, if, if it was following the weird, you said, isn't it? Whether actually that was a good thing to do or not. You know, it's the very scary moments. But, you know, thank goodness that's turned around. And Kirsty, for you? Well, again, for me, very few
2: low points, because I think, as with all of the charity sector, we're really resilient. Even when there are small knocks, I think we think creatively, we act innovatively. And we get a move on, Yeah, you know, we're determined to deliver um, for the children that we're there to serve. So I think Covid obviously was awful. It's been awful for the shop. It's been awful for the staff that have had to stop our young writers coming in. But we knew that we needed to find another way of doing it. And in some ways, we've probably seen some of our best work because we've just had to turn it on a pin. And get back into the homes of our young writers. And I think it's just a shame with second lockdown that we'd started having very small groups of children back in the building. And as of this week, we've had to stop that again. And I think we've all got this uncertainty of how long that's going to last. So for now, we carry on online, we keep up our energy, we keep creating, we just need to keep trying, because I think the most important thing is that we're there.
0: And conversely, Alice, you're high. If you were sitting in a carriage, obviously the typeface on your carriage would be pretty spectacular.
3: Stunning hand-lettered, of course. I think the highway came just a few days later after having done the painting of the shelves. We had all the kids coming in for the first time, all the press and everyone was sort of getting excited about it. But I just had a moment of sitting in the shop behind the counter with an apron on, ready to serve people. All the products on the shelves and they're all stuff that I had made and, mm. you know, the, the vision had become a reality. And then people come in and start buying stuff and look properly engaged and excited and amused. And you just think, well, this isn't a bad way to spend a day. So, yeah, I think that's my high point.
0: And nothing stuck to your shelves. No- <laughs> the, the varnish, it didn't, like, one of those awful moments, you go to get it and you're like... <gasps> We've used the wrong varnish again. Oh my goodness, (laughs) that didn't happen. The shelves are still sometimes a little
2: sticky, Alistair. I didn't realise this was down to you. No,
3: no, no, that's that's monstrous residue.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And
2: Kirsty, you're high. Oh, my highlights been very recent. I mean, there's been many, but I had a brilliant one recently. I was trying to track down a child, a young writer that was in one of our early videos. And all I could find was his name, Anthony, everywhere. Everything just said Anthony, no surname, no nothing. And it was driving me crazy. But through luck and a lot of digging in the file, I found his surname. I got in touch with his mum. She said, oh, you can't speak to Anthony right now because he's actually just at university at the moment studying aeronautical engineering. He's just started his degree, (gasps) but I'll let him know that you've called. And we were trying to get his consent to use a tiny bit of the video he was in when he was, I think he was 10 at the time. And so he's replied to say he gives consent for the use of it. But... For us as a team to know that one of our young writers is now 18 at university. Yes, he's doing aeronautical engineering. He's not writing, but his mum was reflecting how well he did in secondary school, how much it was important to him to come to the clubs at the time. And just getting that small bit of reflected glory that one of our young writers has got out there. We just feel exceptionally proud. I bet. You know, we just see ourselves as catalysts and just hope that our young writers take their confidence and go and do whatever they want to do. So that was brilliant.
0: together with our friends at three we're working to make business dreams come true share your dreams on social using the hashtag holly and co dreamer and who knows what will happen Three understands it's been a tough time for businesses, so they're offering their business price promise. A promise that if you find a better deal, they'll beat it. Not only that, I love that they offer up to £500 of benefits from specialist partners to help your business thrive. Head to three.co.uk forward slash terms for terms and conditions. Now, here's a short story about those that dream big and flew. I like to make hats that make people dream, are the words of Sir Philip Tracy, Born in rural Ireland, his interest in sewing started when he was just five, and his obsession with weddings in the church across the road from his house ignited an early passion for fashion. Philip moved to Dublin when he was 17, where he studied fashion. He took six weeks' work experience with British milliner Stephen Jones and graduated in 1990 with first-class honours. That same year, he was asked to design a hat for Tatler editor Isabella Blow, an event that changed the course of his life. Rising quickly through the fashion ranks, Philip's designs were highly coveted and were worn by celebrities and supermodels everywhere. Be it a giant disc or replica sailing ship, his creative and glamorous creations are instantly recognisable and Vogue described him as perhaps the greatest living milliner. Sir Philip Tracy's drive and vision constantly changed the perception of what a hat should be and he says hats are no longer symbols of conformity but highly individual acts of rebellion. Don't forget to share your own business dreams on social using the hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer. And to find out more about their business plans, search Three Means Business. Now, back to conversations of inspiration. What a truly wonderful time I've had, I feel that this brand is so clever. It's so refreshing. It feels like even though it's 10 years old, it's not, you know, it's just beginning. And I'm excited to see what happens for you. And as I said, I I would love to help that. And we're proud stockists now at Holly & Co. And so to be able to say that we're stockists, we're so thrilled. It's that moment in time where I ask you both, if you would mind sharing a part of your soul with us today. And I'm wondering who would like to go first in reading their letter to their younger self. Kirsty, do you want to go first? Okay, I will. I'm hoping
2: it's not too long. So, this is a letter I've written to my 10-year-old self. It's been a an amazing exercise to think back to young Kirsty. Dear Kirsty, you're 10 years old and standing on the side of a stage, waiting for the big moment. You've been practising your best Margaret Thatcher voice for your role, projecting wildly in a very nervous. But you're also distracted as you're thinking about the ham sandwich that's waiting for you at the end of the show. You've not eaten for 11 hours as you're doing a sponsored fast to raise money for the famine relief in Africa. You're feeling a little bit faint, but you still take to the stage and give it your best Maggie which isn't very good, to be honest. You may be relieved to hear that acting never becomes your thing, neither does tap or ballet or piano, but you had a good go and that's fine by me. To be honest, writing from the future, you'd be struggling right now if one of those was your chosen path as the arts and culture are under threat and someone silly would be telling you you need to retrain. You don't know it yet, but you'll become an ally for all causes during primary and secondary school. You'll have an opinion on everything, and you will reach out to help ex-dancing bears and whales. You'll fight to stop animal testing by buying white musk from the body shop. You'll raise money through sponsored silences and then use all of your unused words the next day to nag your parents to stop smoking their Sam Moritz menthol cigarettes, which they did eventually. You won't be alone in wanting to make a change in your pocket of the world. There'll be a special kind of atmosphere in West London where you grew up in the late 1980s and 90s, where it'll feel possible to make life and society better. Secondary school will be a bit of a shock, but you'll survive. At moments you'll thrive and you'll do well to swerve the girls' lose at break time. You'll start needing a bit of your own money and you'll get five babysitting jobs, one dog-sitting job, probably the best hourly rate you've ever had, and then your first job as a Sunday shop assistant at Dylan's The Bookshop, when time and a half was a thing. You'll hide the last copy of the book you want down the back of the shelf so you could buy it on payday. Christmas would be awful, but you enjoyed the thoughtful piece the rest of the year. You love working in a shop. You'll hit art college for a year while you try and settle if you want to be a photographer but the college sends you a little loopy and conceptual and you find yourself carving giant vegetables wondering what happened. The jacket potatoes in the cheap college cafe are nice, but not enough to keep you in formal arts education. And you complete the year, apply to university and choose social geography against the college's recommendation. You assume, sadly, that creativity will always be in your life, But it drops off for more than 20 years as life gets in the way, and you will always miss pencil sharpenings and charcoal. You even stop reading for pleasure for a little while. Too much compulsory reading, crammed under pressure, killed the joy. In your teens and twenties, you'll realise that the only thing you really care about is other people and being happy. While others will worry about their career, you don't have a plan and you're not worried. In fact, in your third year, you'll get a small local job earning £4 an hour in a little brown envelope so you can be around normal people, tidying up flannels, running the till and hoovering your local pharmacy. This will prove to be a lifesaver and probably helped you to get through your final exams. Studying the power of people and place will lead you down the road to a long career working in homelessness. You'd never say that you're political because you get tongue-tied in an argument but to your core, you know that where you're born and what you have today should not reduce your life chances or opportunities. You end up running a Christmas night shelter, then become a researcher, and then after a break, find yourself back in Shepherd's Bush running a day center for people who sleep rough. You'll recognize some of the people that come into the center as you've seen them drinking on the green, but their lives have got much worse now that you're 20. You'll have moments when you feel young, vulnerable and out of your depth. You'll even find a poo in a branded mug one day and someone will overdose in the lane but survive. And you and your team will get through it by being bloody minded, bloody hilarious and by working bloody hard. You'll settle in your own life, move on from working on the front line to make sure you have energy for your family. You return to your early roots in fundraising and love being an advocate to end homelessness and play the role of a matchmaker, finding people who want to help and bringing the as supporters for your charity. You develop strong friendships with like-minded people and sidestep through your career when things catch your eye before rising up the ladder as the charity gets huge around you. Every year you'll do more work, work harder and your jobs and responsibilities will grow You start feeling you're getting too far from the bottom, too far from the middle and a long way from the top and you'll miss working in the building where the real work happens. So it's time to move again and you'll see a new job sparkling at you just by chance. You won't quite believe what you're seeing. A charity where children's talent is celebrated and new books are breathed into life. A shop for monsters with a till to use and a jar of snot for sale. A secret door and a magical space where all the work happens right on the high street. A local charity for a unique, talented and special community. And a chance to bring creativity to every area of your work and back into your own life. You've found your place. So 10-year-old Kirsty, there is no need to have a plan. Do what you want to do today. Go and eat that sandwich. Sponsor your next ex-dancing bear. And then follow your instincts. Everything you already have is what will bring you to today. And who knows where it will take you tomorrow.
0: Oh, curse, it's beautiful. You obviously can write. I wonder what your letter will say in another 10 years with this amazing journey that you're on, with this incredible charity. Thank you. And Alistair, it's your turn.
3: Right, awesome. Um, so I've gone a bit off brief. I'm 47, I haven't had children, so I thought instead of writing to my younger self, I'd write to the two kids that I probably would have had if I had had kids. Anyway, I hope that's not too weird, so here we go.
0: I love it. Excellent.
3: Dear kids, how on earth are you? God, I'd like to meet you. You must be about 10 or so now, right? I know that you must be brilliant. And that doesn't mean achieving incredible things or being wildly rich or successful. It just means that you're kind and warm and loving. And if you're anything like my siblings and me were when we were your age, you also fight with each other like cats and dogs. But that's okay. You'll always make up in the end. And when you're older, like us, hopefully you'll become firm friends. Now, I thought it might be about time that I passed on the best bits of advice that I've been given over the years. A lot of it from my parents. So here are a few of the things that I think really matter. First up. My dad taught us that in any encounter with someone else, you should step into their shoes and see things from where they stand. It's invaluable advice and makes you a better person. Both my mum and dad allowed me to follow my instincts, and that served me well in life. Go with your gut. You generally know what you really want or need to do. They also encouraged me to follow my interests, to do the things I loved. That was an incredible luxury and has led me to doing the things that really fulfill me. So work out what you love and head in that direction. You're going to have to earn a living at some point. It sounds really dull, but it doesn't have to be. One of the great things I was told is that you should do what you're good at, what you love, and what someone is willing to pay you for. And I'd add to that that you should also do something that leaves the world in a better place than when you found it. We've only got one planet, and we've made a terrible mess of it so far. If you do find that magic mix of things, you'll also find happiness. Oh, and hey, if you can, work with people you like, and don't work with people you don't. It'll make your days far more enjoyable. Treat everyone with respect and kindness and expect them to return that courtesy and be kind with other people's hearts. They're soft and squishy and easily hurt. Lastly, remember that happiness comes from the simplest, smallest things, most often in the company of friends and family. Anyway, enough of my ramblings. I'm sure you've got far more fun things to do than read letters from a hypothetical parent. Love you loads. Dad. Oh,
0: Alistair. I love that I love that I've never had anyone take that viewpoint and what a lovely letter and you know what I've noticed about you both during this interview and what's so wonderful is that um, you're both coming at this charity two different angles and now we've got an actual is that the invisible cat it's
3: the actual cat unfortunately sorry about that
0: Um, but I just want to say there is this relationship and mutual respect between the two of you building this charity and the charity is lucky to have you both but I always talk about the yin and yang and the, the combined minds collaboration community bringing people together that causes such amazing energy and sparks and I can see this in both you. And it's just been a real honour to witness that. And I just wish you both so much success. You've built something extraordinary. I do wish you everything. And as I said, I will be cheering you on from now on, not just because I'm a supplier of your amazing products, but because what you're doing is so meaningful and so needed. Um, so thank you both so much for your time today. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Before you go, don't forget NatWest's Business Builder. Packed full of videos and advice to help you build your business and give you the tools you need. To find out more, head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash hollytucker. If you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.